And as we come uh, this morning, um, it is important for us to stay focused because we are looking at this portion which talks about Christian conduct. And uh, so let me pray before we move on. Dear Lord, uh, we want to commit ourselves unto you at this time. We, we ask you to enable us to open our hearts, be receptive to your word so that we can understand uh, what you have to teach us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you struggle to live out your belief, your faith? Do you struggle to live out what you believe? I think if you're like me, you'll have this struggle quite often. And so I think when we look at James, this is a book which will enable us to actually examine our faith. How authentic is our faith in the Lord? Unlike the typical Pauline epistles, James is often categorized as a book of instruction, a book of wisdom, and therefore it's categorized as a genre of wisdom literature as alongside uh, um, a book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. So this book is practical centered for Christian living. If there is any book in the New Testament which is about how to live a Christian life, this book is one. So the main message for us as we look through the book of James is how believers persevered or how believers are called to live out their faith. How we relate to this book will tell us about the authenticity of our faith. Our God-given faith is, is, uh, is one that is expected of us to work out our faith. Just as Ephesians chapter 2 would tell us that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ to do good works. So good works is one of the mandate for us as Christians. So for the next five weeks, we'll be looking at uh, this book of James and how to face trials and temptations, how we should behave or how our action matters in the world we live in, how we should watch our speech and how we can find wisdom in the Lord. So please keep your Bibles open to the portion which has been read to us and we shall try to look at it uh, as closely as possible. We have two simple divisions for us as we look at this 18 verses of James chapter 1. Persevering during trials, the first 12 verses, and persevering during temptation, which is from 13 to 18 verses. So we'll try to follow this simple pattern. When we look at verse 1, of course, verse 1 is introduction to the writer and also his audience. James, as uh, scholars have pointed out, is the brother, the half-brother of Jesus here, not, the, not James the apostle. And he refers him to himself as the servant of God. Now, of course, this is this is himself humbling before the audience that he was writing to. He, he did not take pride in being a half-brother of Jesus. So James, if you look at it, if you read from uh, John's narrative and other gospel narratives also, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him as the Messiah. But soon after resurrection, there was a change in the family. At least James was identified as one of the leaders later in Jerusalem. And he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the world, the nations, as it. Even though the Jewish diaspora was not a new thing. Jewish diaspora has been happening for many centuries before this. But James Auden's 
were mainly those believers who have found faith in Jesus Christ and now have been dispersed or scattered among the Roman Empire primarily. This happened, you know, if you read the book of Acts, especially after Acts 7, where we see the murder of Stephen. After Stephen was martyred, in chapter 8, 9, 10, you read that these believers were scattered. They were feared of, fear of persecution has scattered them across the world. So as an elder of the Jerusalem church, he was concerned about the fears that these new believers were uh, undergoing. So he writes to them to encourage them to persevere in the faith in these difficult times. And scholars also have pointed out that this letter perhaps was written within the first 20 years after resurrection, making it uh, you know, perhaps the earliest epistle in the New Testament. And look at verse 2, what he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, of course, consider it pure joy. Or if you read New King James Version, it says, Count it all joy when you face trials of different kinds. Isn't it contradictory to what we should be? What does it mean? Does it mean that we, are, we should pretend to be happy when you are facing trials? Of course not. What James is talking about here is that we should be able to respond with joy when we face a trial. Now again, this is important for us to understand that joy is not happiness. Happiness is a temporary feeling, but joy is an attitude. Joy is a heart attitude, you know. So when we face trials, we are to trust in God and hope that the Lord will take us through this, teaching us some important lessons about life. But that's not what most people do. That's not what I do most often. I forget about these important things that uh, we are supposed to. Often I ask, why me? Or most people ask, why, what have I done to deserve this situation? Why is God allowing this to happen in our, in our life? You know? So what James is telling us here is that we should be able to move past why me status into what can I learn from this? What does God want me to understand from these trials that I'm going through? So when you talk about trials of many kinds in the second part of verse 2, read that often we go to trials or sufferings and uh, he's giving us a perspective that there's no one homogeneous suffering that is in our life. Suffering can be something which is very common. There are some sufferings which are common, like the pandemics that we're going through or you know, conflict that many people go through. Sufferings sometimes are corrective, like disciplining of children by parents. This may be suffering at the sort at that particular moment but it is for the larger good, for a long-term good. But some sufferings are also cosmic. Now, when we read about Job, you know, God sent the angels of Satan to tempt Job. And when we read of the blind man healed by Jesus in John chapter 9, and the disciples asked him, why, who has sinned, whether his parents or him, the blind man? Jesus said, none have sinned. But this, is, this has happened so that the work of God may be accomplished, so that there may be glory in God's name. And some sufferings are also constructive. And I think we're going to focus more on this as we look through. 
But I guess the best sufferings that we see in the Bible is that it is a redemptive suffering, which is personified in the form of Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sin, humbled himself, and died for us so that we may have life eternal. Whatever may be, you know, we don't like going through trials or tests of life. But as this book will tell us, as this short passage will tell us that we understand trials and we learn so much from all these things. So when we look at this first passage, it is just like school kids who don't want to go through tests, don't want to take up, take exam. But it is for the larger good. They can be evaluated on those terms. It is for us to actually look at. Also note how James is talking about these trials. He says, he did not say that these trials or sufferings will be optional. He did not use the word if, but he used the word whenever to actually qualify the face or the, the understanding that it is not something which is optional for Christians. In fact, it is expected of Christians to go through trials. If you read uh, about Jesus talking to his disciple and praying for him in the last moment that he's had from chapters 15 of John 15, he told his disciple clearly and plainly that the world will hate them just as it hates him. And so he was preparing these disciples and it is preparing us for us too, as we live in this world, that sufferings, persecutions will come and we shouldn't be surprised when all these things come. That is why Jesus, sorry, uh, James was talking about how, how we should be possessing a sense of joy when we go through this. Because as we read from chapter 2 and 3, because, look at chapter verse 3, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. This is very interesting. And I want to draw a parallel to what Paul also wrote to the Romans. And this is what we read in Romans chapter uh, 5, verse 1 and 5. Therefore, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace, in which we, are, we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That's a very important statement which Paul was making. That suffering produces perseverance. It's the same thing what John James is also talking about here in this chapter one. That perseverance is an important virtue. This is the character and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. However, we do not, I mean, often we do not always possess this kind of perseverance. We forget the glory, uh, the hope of glory that we have in Jesus Christ. We forget to see things from God's perspective, the high view of things around us. And if you're like me, you'll identify with Paul when he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, that I do not understand what I do. For what I want, I do not do, but, I, but I, what I hate, I do. 
I often end up being in this situation and I struggle with it. That's the faith that I'm struggling to live with. And it's flesh and flesh and bones. I think we all understand the problems that we're all going through. So interestingly, James understands our problem too and advises us when you read, when we read in verse five to seek God's wisdom. That's why he said, if you lack, lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously and without finding fault. Now, James is talking about how we should uh, uh, seek God's help, God's wisdom. And it is only possible when we turn to God. Wisdom is the ability to discern your God-given gift in our life. Again, wisdom is not mere knowledge of something on a subject. It is the ability to apply practically whatever knowledge that we have gained. I repeat that wisdom is not mere knowledge of a subject, but it is the ability to practically apply them in our daily living. The wisdom that James is talking about is the ability to make wise decisions in our daily living. As for Christians, we need not grope around in darkness because God has given us the wisdom and God is the source of wisdom. And that is why James is saying that we have to seek him to understand and find this wisdom. In other words, what James is telling us plainly here in verse 5 is that wisdom is available for everyone who asks. But it comes with a rider. If you read verse 6, do not doubt. If you doubt, you will not receive. It's plain as that. Verse 6 comes as a rider for verse 5. Because if you doubt, you are like a wave in the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That's something important for us too. It is also a reflection of how our prayer life is. How do we see ourselves when we pray? Do we look at God as a wish-granting fairy? Please do not think that God will fulfill all our thoughtless and selfish prayers. Rather, we should pray that God would align our desires, desires into his will. That God would align our desires into his will. And that's the same prayer which Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6. When he says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is about how we should align our wills, our wishes, our desires into one which is with God. And that's the reason why he mentions in verses 9 to 11 that there, there's an important truth here in verses 9 to 11 that we have to treat everyone equal. He goes on to explain further about this in chapter 2. So I'm not going to elaborate so much on this thing. But I wanted to stress on the fact that our test of faith can also come in how we perceive riches or uh, possessions. First thing, he talks about how the poor should be glad that riches means nothing to God. Verse 9. Otherwise, if riches means many things, then people will be, you know, living in inferior complex. Depending because people's uh, attitude will depend a lot on how people view wealth. Secondly, he goes on, you know, 10 and 11. He goes on to say that the rich should also understand that he shares the same faith with that of everyone else. Everything fades. Everything in the world is temporary. 
Now, of course, the truth that James is trying to stress on here is that what matters to God is what is in our heart, not what is in our banks, not what we possess. What matters is what is in our heart. Where do we stand as a church today in this regard? Where do you stand as an individual, individual called by God to live for his glory? I know our Christianity today is tested and tried in many forms. And our churches are even struggling about this in a big way. We see the rich and the poor divide quite visible in many churches. We see the status, we see caste coming into our church at play. Where do we see this? Do we see God's wisdom to understand that we are not supposed to be this, but to accept the fact that God is the one who treats everyone equal? And that's why if you look at this section, verse 12 suitably sums up this first section which I'm looking at. And let me read that for you. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised for those who love him. Our reward is how we persevere during trials or tests. Our reward will depend on, 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 on God's judgment. Remember that Christians and all of us will also be evaluated in God's judgment on what we do. That's a taste of faith that we're looking at. So an important truth I want us to draw from this passage is that Christians must encounter trials and tests of life with joy because God matures us through those circumstances. That's an important truth that has emerged from this section. That Christians must encounter trials and tests of life with joy because God matures us through those circumstances. We need to persevere during hard times and depend on God because he understands us completely. He understands us completely. So let's quickly look at the second portion for us this morning, which is from 13 to 18. And let me read the 13 to 16 once again. When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to death. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. It's a very important thing for us to actually look at here in this small portion. When I was trying to think of some illustrations about this thing, I couldn't think of more beautiful than something which is quite visible in the Bible. There's a pattern of sin that James is talking about here, which is infesting our lives, continually infesting our lives. And let me take you to the first human beings. When we read in Genesis chapter 3, verses, verse 6, this is what we read. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable to gain wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And she added, look at this pattern. She saw the fruit, which was good and pleasing to the eye. And she desired of it. And then she acted upon it. She took it. We should understand this pattern, which James is talking about. That 
temptation comes to us because of our evil desires. This is what he plainly says. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to death, a sin. And sin results in death. And as we read from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. We understand here that this same old pattern that was what visible in the Garden of Eden continue to persist in our life too. Let's look at another example which I want to take you to. And this is a very familiar one again. It's about the life of David. When one evening David got up from his bed and walked around in the roof of his palace, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. It's the same pattern which is at work here in the life of David. What happened with Eve? How Eve was deceived? We see that at work in David's life. David also saw the beautiful woman and he desired of her. Went to find out about her. And then she took her. She sent her. The same pattern of work, uh, sin, which is at work here. Now we have to understand that temptation in itself is not a sin. But when we act upon it, it is a sin. Remember, Jesus was also tempted, but he did not sin. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. This old pattern of sin that we see in, our, in, in, the, in the Bible continues to infest in our life today. If you look at the ads around us, today lust is portrayed as desirable. Adultery is acceptable. Greed, selfishness, these are things which are desirable. Judgmentalism is acceptable. It's an attitude which everybody seems to be seeking. Premarital or extramarital affairs seems to be something which is fashionable in our world today. That's what the advertisement tells us. We are assaulted by the visuals that is around us. There is a redefinition of what virtue is. The world around us is trying to actively convince us through what we see. Now, I think it is sometimes a blessing to be blind. Because many temptations come to us through our eyes. Now, the important thing that, that the important warning that James is giving us here is that when we indulge in what we see and hear, we fall into temptation. The important thing is to keep away from all this. Quite often, many, many Christians end up wondering where, whether God is tempting, just like James is writing here. But verse 13 clearly tells us that God does not tempt anyone. I think there is a confusion uh, within us about test and temptation. Test, as we see, is often constructive. It builds our character when we persevere through it. But when we talk about tests, the Bible also mentions about how God tested Abraham. And through that, he built him uh, to be a faithful person. David also asked God to taste his heart when we read in Psalms 139. And God allowed Job to be tested. So test in life, in our Christian life too, is an important factor. It's an important thing to build us up as our uh, as we read through. It is our evil desires that drags us away. 
we have to understand here very importantly that we are sinful beings. Our sinful nature is a default state. We are born into sin and that's why temptation comes to us so easily. But at the same time, we have to understand, we, we, the Bible also clearly tells us that God knows our weaknesses. So we need to depend on him when we are faced with trials and temptations. Jesus taught us to overcome temptation and gives us the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, as Ephesians chapter 6 tells us. And also when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul tells the Corinthians that God will find a way when we are tempted and we will not be tempted beyond what we can bear. God understands the situation, my dear brothers and sisters. This is something which should uh, encourage us at this point of time, if you are going through difficult moments. And so that is the reason why he moves on to verse 17 and 18 and calls the believers to trust in God because he is the source of all good and perfect gift. James, you know, as he goes on, talks about this birth through the word of truth. And suddenly he's talking about the salvation that we have found in Jesus Christ. Where he talks about how he chose us to give this beautiful life that we have. And he talks about a, a kind of first fruit. Now for the Jewish uh, readers, this would be immediately identifiable because they are very familiar with the concept of giving God the first crops of the harvest. And remember, James was also writing to these first generation Christians of Jewish background who have become a kind of a first fruit. But likewise, for us too, we are also meant to be the first fruit in the worship of God through our lives. So knowing these wonderful truths should enable us to stand against temptation because God understands the situation. We can go through all these difficulties because God is with us. When we go through temptations, particularly, we must remember the promises of God. He is faithful and he can do so many things. That brings us to an important truth from this section. Believers can resist temptation to sin by turning to God and trusting in his word to comfort us in times of trouble. Believers can resist temptation to sin by turning to God and trusting his word to comfort us. That is how we can perceive you during temptation. There is no other way. And quickly in conclusion, let me put it this way, that we are called to stand firm in our Christian walk. So that leads us to an immediate question. Where do you stand today in your Christian walk? Are you going through trials and temptations? Remember, God understands. Sometimes it helps to see things from his perspective, the high view of life. Not always from our perspective. Sometimes we may seem like, you know, we are in the midst of a disaster and you wonder if, uh, if, if anything good can come out of this. But as I was preparing this, I came across, um, I was reminded of an important word that J.R.L. Tolkien, the writer of uh, The Lord of the Rings, mentioned about. And he talks about you catastrophe. Of course, he, he, he just used, uh, added the word you to catastrophe. You means good in the, 
in, in, in Greek. So catastrophe means destruction or tragedy. So how can there be a good catastrophe? It, is, it seems contradictory. It's an oxymoron in one way. But he was talking about how even in the World War II, as he lived through it, it was like the pandemic that we're all going through at the moment. There can be something good that emerged out of this. And Gerald Tolkien said that the greatest you catastrophe that we see in history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us. What everybody thought was a tragedy, a tragic moment for Christianity, suddenly became the life-giving force. Because the resurrection is all that is in Christian life. So for us, as we are going through difficult times, if we are going through, you know, individuals may be going through difficult times. Remember that they, these moments can be also a catastrophe moment. Also remember this, that when James was writing to the first generation Christians who are scattered across the world, this happened because of some persecutions that happened in Jerusalem and Judea in the first century. It is because of these persecutions that happened in Jerusalem that the gospel got spread all over the world. That was the catastrophic moment for Christianity. So quickly, let me leave you with a couple of questions uh, for us to ponder as we think about this passage. The first is, what is your greatest challenge? Greatest challenge at this point in time in your spiritual life? What, how is your heart attitude towards it? How are you approaching this challenge that is going through? Are you approaching it as though it's all negative? Or are you approaching it with a bitter thought? Or are you angry that you're going through this moment? Or are you joyful because you know that God has a purpose in it? Are you able to persevere through these trials that you're going through? Secondly, how are you seeking God's wisdom in your daily practical living? Now, when we talk about God's wisdom, as we have quickly looked through, that we, we talk about uh, uh, depending on God to give you wisdom, which is the key to a successful Christian life. There's no other way than to seek God's wisdom for a successful Christian life. And it is always not easy because we end up doing our own way and only seek God at the last moment when we can't accomplish things. But James is telling us and giving us a reminder that our life should be governed by approaching God to give us wisdom, to navigate through life in times of difficulty. And the third is, in which areas or what areas of life are you battling with temptation to sin? How are you coping with them? In what areas of life are you battling with a temptation to sin? How are you coping with them? Are you fighting the battle alone? Are you, bat are you battling this alone in your room? Perhaps many people are struggling with lust. Perhaps many people are struggling with pornography. Or many other things that are challenging our lives today. Are we navigating these tough choices that are to be made alone? Are you able to take it to God? I want us to call you to turn to God and give it to Him. Because He understands our situation. And whatever situation you may be going through, if you trust in God, 
he will understand us and help us out of this because we cannot battle these struggles temptations alone even jesus used the word of god to help him navigate through the temptations that he was facing he has given us example can we do this today let's look to god in prayer dear lord we want to thank you for this opportunity to listen to your word from james chapter 1 help us to live through these difficulties in your name lord thank you for your word and the blessings that we receive from hearing your word in jesus name we pray amen over the past past 